0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to quality content on the 2020 Network presented by Interact. I'm your host, Alex Patterson. All right, if you're like me, you can't help but be obsessed with American politics, and I say help because, as a Canadian, whenever I find myself spending more time reading like advanced polling from Michigan than I do actually watching the national, like I feel guilty. Like, what am I even doing? I have a Canadian passport. I can't vote for any of these people. And sure, I tell myself that the next administration will have a big impact on Canadian exports and trade policy. But that's a small dose of comfort so I can keep watching the circus on Showtime or listening to Pod Save America. We often hear that America's greatest export is democracy. We've heard it a million times. It sounds great. But maybe it's more that their greatest export is the campaign. Seriously, no one campaigns like Americans campaign. You can run for everything in the U.S., and someone always is. Elections are sport with the highest stakes possible, battled between the biggest personalities. And that's what makes the storyline so compelling and distracting to people like me who have their own candidates and elections and political systems to worry about. So today on the show, I thought I would try to get it out of my system by leaning into that obsession with Sarada Perry. Sarada, if you don't know, was a senior speechwriter for President Obama and is now a visiting global fellow with the Ryerson Leadership Lab. Sarada was supposed to join me in studio here in Ottawa, but because of new travel restrictions, she joined me from her home in Washington, D.C., where we talked about the state of the Democratic Party, primary season, and what it will take to beat Trump. In 2020, I hope you enjoy it, Sarah. Hello. Hello. How are you doing?
1: I'm well. How are you?
0: I'm I'm good. You you are not in Ottawa. You are in Washington D.C. I
1: am sadly not in Ottawa. Right. I am uh, I'm stuck in in Washington uh, as we are all waiting to see what happens with the uh, with the coronavirus, and so travel is being discouraged at the moment.
0: I'm wondering if we can go back to the very earliest days of this democratic primary season. You had a, a diverse and a youthful field of candidates. You've got accomplished men and women of color, you've got the first openly gay candidate. What was the feeling in the Democratic Party and in democratic politics at the very start of this process?
1: Hmm. I think, I mean, I think there was genuine excitement in the beginning of the primary. And honestly, I can't even remember when it started because it, it feels like we've been in this phase for like a decade. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think initially there was a lot of excitement to your point. We had, you know, women of color, we had a gay man, we had people who were geographically diverse, who represented the full spectrum of the Democratic Party and all of its um, ideological diversity. Um, so it, I think it was it was genuinely exciting. And then we had people who you sort of expected to run again, like Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden. Um, but there was, there was, I think, you know, just a general sense of hopefulness for anybody who follows politics closely. Um, there was also a bit of trepidation in. The- in the sense that a big primary with a lot of people is also, it's a little alarming because you know that it's going to be a pretty bloody battle. We saw what happened in 2016. Uh, There were a whole lot of candidates on that Republican uh, primary debate stage, Um, and obviously we we were left with Donald Trump. And so I think there was also a little bit of nervousness. But in terms of the quality and the caliber of the candidates, I mean, it was really excellent, you know we have and and for me personally i i got I was excited by the fact that wow, we've got a lot of great people in the Democratic Party sitting on the bench, you know and, and members of Congress and all kinds of folks who who didn't run but who were also really excellent so initially, I think there was some excitement
0: so what's the feeling what's what's <laughs> is is there a but coming right like what's what's the feeling <laughs> now and, and and you kind of alluded to it right that that primaries and particularly large primaries. Can be vicious. And I'm wondering if they're vicious always, or if they're vicious because the, the goal or the importance of the goal of removing Trump from office is just magnifying everything. So, w- what's the feeling now?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard to get a sense of, I, I, mean, I can't speak to how everybody feels about it, but I I did get the sense like a week or two before super Tuesday that what people wanted was for this to end relatively quickly. Um, and, and not to not have it be drawn out any longer than it's already been drawn out and get to a nominee relatively quickly so that we could move to the business of the general election. Um, and, and I think that's why you saw this consolidation around Biden, prior, you know, um, obviously we can talk about South Carolina and, and the James Clyburn endorsement that I think put him over the top. But, but, you know, throughout the entire campaign, but especially in the past few months, it has been very clear in polling that the primary, the number one priority for Democratic voters has not been somebody who aligns with them ideologically, but somebody who can beat Trump you know, this sort of, this this nebulous concept of electability has been number one on people's minds. And so it is therefore not surprising that we end up with two septuagenarian white men vying for this nomination in the end, because people's notions of electability of what can beat Donald Trump is in a sense circumscribed by history and by our understanding of what what other people will vote for, right? So Mm -hmm. if I think that what I need to do is win, say, working-class voters in Wisconsin who voted for Obama then went for Trump, my thinking is that, you know, Mayor Pete, uh, a a very young gay man, or Elizabeth Warren, a woman, is just not going to be the person who's going to make that person, make that voter pull the lever for the Democrat. Um, Whether or not that's actually true, that is, the I think, our our sensibility about it. And so in the end, you know, as, as wide and varied as our primary was, maybe we were always going to get to the point where we started, which is with these two guys. Um, and it's, it's, it's sad, you know, I mean, in any other year, would a, would an Elizabeth Warren or an Amy Klobuchar have done better? I mean, and, and to put it differently, you know, if Barack Obama were running for the 2020 nomination, would he win? Like would the, because where we are is such a sense of urgency, you know, getting rid of Trump is like an existential thing for so many voters. Um, and really I, I, in my view for the health of our democracy, that everything else gets put aside. And so we go with what we think is the safer choice. Um, and I don't know if Barack Obama would win the nomination in this environment. Um, so, yeah.
0: Can we talk about the candidates? My my biggest question about Joe Biden is, like, is he the guy? And I think that's a question that a lot of people are asking themselves. Like, he he's run a confusing campaign. He's given – horrible with a few exceptions speeches at, at really horrible events. Like I went to one of his events in Iowa. It was mm. shocking how bad it was. He's done a a pretty fair to poor job on debate stages and there's just this rising chorus of people. And yeah, some of it is definitely politically motivated that are questioning his age and his mental, mental fitness for the task. So, but he's still leading the field and he's still leading the polls and he's got the most delegates. So can you explain like you alluded to it earlier, but can you explain what's happening here?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can do my best. I, I think, you know, Joe Biden
0: is—that's all is, we can ever do. That's all yeah. we can ever
1: do. <laughs> um, so, Joe Biden is actually an extremely talented politician, and he wouldn't be in public life for this long if he if he wasn't right. There is something about Joe Biden that people find deeply appealing, authentic, um, and decent. Um, and you know, he's a really good guy and somebody who, you know, obviously served as vice president for eight years, somebody who Barack Obama trusted and trust and the people of Delaware trusted for a long time. Um and he has spent decades, literally decades, building relationships with communities. Mm-hmm. And um and there is just something real about him that that people love. Um and you know that sort of Uncle Joe sensibility is is in a way, I think, what people hunger for. The campaign, um, and he's got great people, you know, working on his campaign. I, I, you know, I agree with you that initially... Uh, he struggled, um, and he's not the best at sort of giving these set piece speeches. Um, although I think his speech in South Carolina was terrific um, after he won. In, his in speech in South
0: Carolina was was like I, I sat up straight in my chair. I was like, yeah. where has this been? Because it yeah. was just well, exactly. so where has this
1: been. And I think and that that was in part because he could feel the coalescing around him, and and also maybe the pressure that comes with that. Right. So so now mm. if he's gonna, he he's got sort of the weight of the country's hopes um, on his shoulders. If, if he is in fact the front runner, um, he's now, he's really got to bring it right. It's, it, there's with, with Biden, there's always been this sort of difference, a differential and sort of his potential and his performance. And now his performance really has to shine. And we'll, I think to some degree, we'll always grade him on a bit of a curve, um, because of his style, right. He's not the kind of polished, thoughtful, cerebral character that say a Barack Obama was. Um, but But he is, I think he comes across as somebody who's just a decent person who really just genuinely care about people. And that does come through. Um, And so we'll see if he can, I I think what what those of us who, you know, those people who support, and and I, I will tell you right now, I don't have a dog in this fight. I just want to beat Trump. But I think anybody who wants to be Trump is is going to be on this person's side in the sense of like wanting him to succeed and he's going to have to perform. And that's not going to be easy, especially because to your point, you know, these, these, all these rumors of like his mental unfitness and all this stuff. I mean, that's just, that is, that is internet propagated by internet Mm -hmm. nonsense Mm -hmm. propagated Mm -hmm. and perpetuated by, you know, Trump and the GOP. Um, And of course, you know, up against somebody like Trump who is, in my view, clearly mentally unfit, you know Biden will come out looking better but but all but th- this is what Biden has to contend with or and or what Bernie has to contend with, whoever the Democratic nominee is is going to be contending with a machine. I just wrote a piece in the Atlantic about this but but what Trump is going to be doing to win this election is going to be you know all out cheating, but also all the stuff that just ups, gets up to close to the line uh, to cheating, which includes these. Um, social media propagated rumors and lies, and you know all kinds of stuff. And so, it's not going to be enough for whoever the candidate is to run the best possible campaign. Sort of everybody who wants to beat Trump needs to be on board and needs to do what they can do to to you know support that candidate. Um, and so, it's not going to be easy. But yeah, no, I, I mean, I think I think all you know, I'm certainly worried about Biden's performance because he's always been an uneven candidate for the presidency, yeah. which is why he's never won it. Um, you know, so this is his third time running. So, so we'll see what happens.
0: You know, on the other side, let's, let's chat about Bernie. Yeah. And I guess my, my biggest question about Bernie is less about Bernie himself and actually more about his supporters. Um, Would you describe what Bernie has built as a movement? And if the answer is yes, like what's different about a movement than a traditional sort of like supporting a campaign with some policies?
1: That's interesting. Uh, I mean, I think he has built a a movement in the in the sense that he has, first of all, moved the Overton window of of democratic policy, uh, certainly within the primary, that more than maybe anybody has in recent memory. I mean, every person running for president under, you know, in the in the primary has offered a more progressive agenda than Barack Obama or could right like it's, he just and that was bernie 's doing so you know either to his credit or to his blame depending on where you fall politically that 's a huge accomplishment um, and you know he has built a movement he 's energized an enormous number of supporters but not quite enough, which we'll get to in a second but he 's really generated a lot of excitement and enthusiasm um, particularly among young people um, he he 's built a huge coalition in the Latino community across co- the country so so yeah he has built a movement um, you know, unfortunately, he's built a movement among the most unreliable voters in, like, history, which are young people, right? I mean, uh, you know, yep. in ancient Rome, young people yep. weren't voting. I mean, young people just are not great about turning out. And so this is not to, you know, discredit them. It's just, you know, when I was a young person, we, 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 that's, that's how it is. And so that is, I think, has been one of his his struggles. Um, and, and also, I mean, I think what's hard for Bernie, too, is that, you know, he's not, is not and has not been a member of the democratic party and and in america for a long time and this has changed political parties were where were the center of power we had no other way of organizing our politics other than our parties and so to be a member of the democratic party also meant that you were supporting democrats in other states you were helping build state parties you were giving money to other candidates you know you were part of a system um and and that has really meant something um, and, uh, and he hasn't been a part of that. And so while his supporters were very angry with the democratic national committee for seeming to put their lot behind Hillary Clinton in 2016, um, and have been mad that, you know, the Democrats have been sort of quote, unquote, again, the establishment has been against Bernie. Um, it, you know, if that's true, it's because Bernie's not a Democrat. Right. And, and I think he allowed that kind of vitriol to seep into the movement, um, and make people really angry. Um, about the Democratic Party, even though he's running for the nomination. So I think that's that's been tricky for him. Um, and we'll see where his, you know, if he, what has been, and the other thing that's been tricky for him in terms of going from a movement to, you know, electoral politics is for a long time for this entire campaign, he has made the case that he was going to expand the electorate, that he was going to bring huge numbers of voters into the process. And those were going to be the people who are going to turn out and who are going to nominate him and who are going to help him beat Donald Trump. Trump. And what what happened on Super Tuesday was that he demonstrated a mathematical ceiling um, to his support. And, you know, that was the only way I think he was going to, you know, people were going to See that, you know, we needed just the math to be the case, but, but actually his coalition shrank from 2016, right? Then the youth turnout has been down and he hasn't been able to expand into other, um, into other groups within the party. And he especially has not been able to really, really make huge movement, which he needed to do with the base of our party, which is African-American voters. Who are over a certain age, right? Not the super young ones, and so I mean that's just where the movement politics gets gets up against electoral politics. Um, and in the you know the four years since he ran for president in twenty sixteen, that was the work that they had to do, and for whatever reason they weren't able to do it. Uh, although we'll see, they might they might still we might be proven wrong today. Um, you know we've got some states up today, so that could be wrong. But but for whatever reason, he did not make people feel like he was the person who could beat Trump.
0: I'm hoping you can help me out in defining a a word that comes up a lot and has come up a lot in this, this election season. I mean, it's obviously closely related to electability and that nebulous concept, as you said, but it's about, we hear a lot about the establishment, right? Like when it, like the, and, and I think that all political parties have their version of that, of, of this sort of, I don't know, in some cases it feels like it's back room. In some cases it feels like it's, um, you know party stalwarts and mainstays that have been there for you know 20 years or whatever so when it comes to the democratic party i'm hoping you can help me define a little bit who is the establishment do they exist and and what do they want
1: <laughs> i don't know i mean does the establishment exist anymore Yeah, I mean, I just don't think it exists in the way that Bernie supporters seem to think it exists, Um, in part because the party is, again, ideologically, electorally, geographically diverse. Um, And so I think what they imagine to be sort of the smoke filled room, you know, that that. You know, made the nomination happen, put John Kennedy on the ticket in 1960. Like that, that exists anymore. I think it's just not the case in the in the way that they're imagining it. Um, and and to suggest that it's the establishment that's against Bernie is really unfair to the older African American voters who pulled the lever for him in South Carolina. Like Joe yeah. Biden does well in in southern primary states where the electorate the, where the electorate is is largely African American, and it would be hard to say that that's the establishment. And um, you know, this might not, not totally answer your question, but what I think is also interesting is that in the South, where Democrats have done poorly for you know a couple of generations now, um, for a whole host of historical reasons. Um, uh, the people who are left in the Democratic Party are largely African-American. And they rely on the party as, uh, they're, that is the movement. That is what they have been part of, an organization that has given them some power where they otherwise would not have any power. That has been the power center, understandably. And it's why... Um, you have someone like Jim Clyburn, who's been such a, a you know a, a stalwart of the party for so long, why his endorsement matters so much, and why people went for someone like Joe Biden, who has obviously also been a, a stalwart of the party, versus a place like Queens, um, where you can knock off a, a Democratic establishment, you know, quote unquote, establishment stalwart like Joe Crowley, you know, and, and bring in an Alexandria Ocasio Cortez where the, the party is strong yes but in general that is a blue district it is a progressive place there is room to move even further to the left and to leave the party and build another power center there is no other power center in South Carolina right for the democrats for anybody who's on the progressive side right. and so right. and, and that right. and, and maybe we'll start to build one you know as demographics change and everything but historically that has not been the case and so again to sort of so in some places there is an establishment but in other places establishment is just the only is the only game in town um, and so I, I think that the way that it's been portrayed as though the establishment is what has defeated, Bernie is just, if in fact he's defeated, he may not be, but is, is a little bit, it's kind of condescending. It kind of misunderstands history. It's a misreading of the electorate. And, um, so yeah, I, I think that that's, it's, it's not quite what they yeah. imagine it to be.
0: No, that's actually validating in some ways because I'm like, am I, yeah. am I missing something here? Am I missing no. something? Um, to the conversation, I, 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 I want to talk about the general election, but I, I want to take a, a very quick tour and talk a little bit about Elizabeth Warren. Um, it's my personal preferences and opinions as, again, as a Canadian who has a Canadian passport and can in no way vote in the American <laughs> election. <laughs> um, she was by far my favorite candidate in the race. It seemed that there was a media cycle – After Elizabeth Warren um, left the race where it kind of clicked into place that, damn, there's only two white guys left. And we had a really qualified woman who just ran a really effective campaign, had all the plans in the world, and even that wasn't enough. And so – and there was a tremendous amount of outpouring of I just real frustration and real – a, a real sense of, you know, we're, we're, we're punching against the wall or the ceiling and, and still, still not good enough. And so I'm wondering, um, what is your read on where that conversation goes and how do you, like, how do you pivot that into, as Elizabeth Warren said in her, um, in her, her speech, when she announced that she was ending, is that we're going to have to wait another four years. Like, yeah. what do we do in another four years?
1: yeah it's a bummer um so I, I i I think the the case of Warren is complicated um, I agree I think she 's you know just a terrific candidate would make a great president um, I, I you know i I totally love her um, uh, so I think a, a few things went wrong for her, and i don 't know what they will tell us about what needs to go right in the future, um, but let 's just kind of lay some of them out so um so th- there's sort of an argument to be made that in a way she was punished for her competence. Um, and a little bit has been written about this. But, you know, she was the one with all of the plans. She was the one who did all of her homework as women... Tend to need to do in order to be alongside the most unqualified man, an unprepared man. We have to be, you know, (laughs) ten times as prepared. Um, And so, and so she was. And and I and you could sort of mark a a moment for her campaign when you know one of the only plans that she that was not her own, but where she signed on to someone else's, was Medicare for all. Um, And you could argue that that was sort of a strategic slash tactical mistake for her to sign on to Bernie's plan as opposed to coming up with her own healthcare plan, because historically she had not been somebody who was rah rah on Medicare for all. But once she once she said she was on that plan, she was pushed on how she would pay for it. Bernie was not um, you know bernie's been has been singing the Medicare for all book for a very long time for you know literally decades and was not really pushed on how he would pay for it. She got a lot more he- heat for it and then when she did put out a plan, everybody jumped on her for how she was going to pay for it and so you know for being the, the person who was in the details when present when she presented the details people jumped on her for those details and i think that was a really difficult moment it was a, it was several news cycles that she could not escape they, they just kept harping on it with her and again i think that was you know that was sort of straight up sexism because what other reason would there be for two people who have the exact same plan and one person being sort of ripped to shreds yeah. for it and the other person not um so there's that element of it i think um around the same time in the fall was it the fall i can't even remember but um there was uh, a series of polls that New York Times put out um, of battleground states and how the top four or five candidates would perform against Trump in the battleground states, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, et cetera. And of, uh, you know, Warren did the worst behind Bernie, Biden, Pete. Um, And it was sort of, I think, alarming to people, especially the sort of the college educated people who read the New York Times read that and thought, oh, no, what's going on here. And when they dug into the polling and when they dug into the focus groups, uh, they, the questions were very cleverly worded to sort of suss out how much of it was sexism. And it was absolutely sexism. I mean, it was even among men and women. It was absolutely because of her gender right. that people did not want to vote for her. Um, right. And yet... I think for a lot of people, it felt like that's not a fight we can have right now. We we are in a, a, a fight for our democracy right now. We don't have time to deal with this. We don't have time to persuade the American electorate that they should vote for this incredibly qualified woman. We just need to move on and nominate someone who can win who can beat Trump and then we'll deal with the sexism later. I mean, I think that's, that was somewhat of the sort of, you know, subconscious calculation that, that voters were doing in their own minds that as much as they loved her, she wasn't somebody they could, you know, they couldn't bank on her winning. And so they weren't going to support her. Um, it sounds like a, it sounds and, like a
0: hierarchy of needs, right. And some exactly, sort of, exactly. It it's
1: absolutely yeah. Maslow's hierarchy. It's exactly. no, right. Yeah. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, and so this time around, we just can't, we can't fight that fight. Um, I will say, I, you know, going forward, this is the first time we've had this this many women in the race um, and be mm-hmm. and be viable candidates. Um, although, you know, too many women dropped out earlier um, than Klobuchar and Warren did. But um, oh, and I think Tulsi might still be in the race, isn't she? So, so I guess yes. Is sorry, all
0: all 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 respect. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: Um, but I think you know, four years from now, you know, we'll see what happens. I think it, it, it matters if Trump wins. Um, I think we're going to see. Um, assuming that Trump ab- absol- actually, let's just say he wins his reelection, assuming he actually does relinquish the nomination uh, for a third term, um, even though, you know, obviously it's not legal for him to run for a third term, but I don't trust him to leave office. But assuming that that all goes to plan, and let's just say he, you know, serves another four years and then there's another nomination for a Republican president in four years, um, or even if not, even if he loses, you will see women run on the Republican side too. Um, you will see very viable women run. And so, you know, and that's happened before, but I do think that the, the sheer number and diversity of the women who ran plausible, strong campaigns in the 2020 Democratic primary will shift things, um, and it will shift people's notions of what's possible, but, um, but it's really hard to say. It's really hard to say yeah. where we go from here. I will say I'm pretty heartened by the fact that in 2018 we had record numbers of women running and winning office, um, and so that, at, at sort of non-presidential levels, we'll continue to see that.
0: The, yeah, the, down ballot. It was very grow. impressive. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: But it sucks. So when people are sexist and they think that like 70 year old men <clears> would do a better job than Elizabeth Warren. It's preposterous, right? It's just preposterous. <laughs>
0: <That> <laughs> I mean, right now,
1: the three, yeah. one of like the three most, lo- you know, the only people who will most likely be president, the three most likely people to be president, to win the presidency in November, are all at the highest risk of getting ill from coronavirus. I mean, it's like, it's ridiculous um, that we're in this situation, but, you know, in term of demographically. But here we are.
0: But here we are, and there is a notion out there that we should vote blue no matter who. Um, Is that a reality or is that just sort of like a a Twitter hashtag right now that makes us sort of feel uh, like there is, you know, a bigger task at hand?
1: Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if people believe it, but I think it is absolutely true and necessary. I mean, I think that if... Mickey Mouse is the nominee. we vote for Mickey Mouse, like it really doesn 't matter um, right. th- there is we need to keep our eye on the prize here I, I, and the prize is is removing Donald Trump from office i mean i 'm at a point where I would vote for a Republican running against him than him because he is mm-hmm. such mm-hmm. a danger to democracy, not just to sort of it 's not just that he 's a you're run of the mill Republican whose policies I disagree with you know it is that he is has completely flouted the rule of law. He shows no interest in protecting the institutions that make our democracy work. He has threatened the press. He is a walking conflict of interest. He is making money off of the presidency, yeah. literally charging the taxpayer money, like extra money, more money, overcharging the taxpayer for his stays at his own golf resorts around the world. I mean, it is, it is – it is sickening um, how much he and his family are looting the presidency and looting the American people. And so I think that, they, that, that the goal has to be just getting him out. And that's why it's, it's almost it's kind of adorable that we're all fighting about policy. But um, but that's not really what's <laughs> at stake here.
0: If we project forward, regardless of whether it is Bernie or as we, I think, expect it to be Biden in the general. Um, where is Trump vulnerable if you're the Democratic candidate running in, and you're the uh, the campaign, where is he vulnerable, and what's the approach in the general?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think his there's sort of a bigger question about tactically how do you run this campaign? You know, from digital targeting and getting out you know getting out the vote, registering voters, voter protection, yep. all that stuff. Um, Uh, and, and, you know, making our candidate as strong as possible, making sure our candidate has a really strong, affirmative message for himself, um, a really clear vision for the America that he wants to build that is inclusive. Um, So there's that. But in terms of Trump's vulnerabilities, which is the question I'm picking up on, um, he's got sort of you know, I think coronavirus is actually an example of one of his vulnerabilities that could be a really effective focus on in this campaign, which is that um, he is it is an incompetent govern- government. Um, he is not running a competent government, and as a result, he is putting you and your family in danger, which is different, I think, from the 2016 campaign where we just talked a lot about his moral failings um, and how, you know, he's basically just, he's a jerk um, and he's like a bad guy. But a lot of people felt, well, this bad guy is in my corner and he was a successful businessman, even though he wasn't, that was the, what he was selling. Um, and so he's going to do that, but for me. And what we have now is four years of utter incompetence, where all he's done is make his rich friends richer and basically made you sicker and less safe. And so there is a message in, there of just his, the fact that he has actually not done what he said he was going to do. And as a result, you are poorer, sicker, and less safe four years later. Um, and then there's, I think, a broader message of, of Trump's corruption, which is essentially, um, Trump is dividing and dividing us and distracting us from the fact that he is picking your pockets to line his, Um, like a straight up sort of, he is basically stealing from us to make himself rich and his children rich and in the process, like running our government into the ground. So somewhere in there, I think is the making of, it tugs on sort of all of his vulnerabilities. Um, and, and I'm, cur- I'm going to be curious to see the polling that comes out of the next couple of weeks of his handling of this public health crisis, because that'll also tell us a little bit more about where people find him to be vulnerable and where people don't trust him. Um, but that's, I think, the beginnings of, of a message.
0: Um, and a compelling one, like you said, it's a target-rich environment, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you don't have to make strategic choices.
1: Well, I was just going to say, I think that's actually the problem, and this is what hurt us in 2016 and what makes Trump such a slippery person to catch. It's like there are too many things, right? He, he's right, he's he got right. targets all over him, and so we end up getting really distracted by the news of the day, and we don't focus on one thing. Um, and so I think, like right now, today, I would say it's his incompetence, and I think that that might actually be... Become more and more of a compelling message. Before the COVID-19 crisis, I was actually really focused on the corruption message, which I still think is strong. But it's really hard not to get distracted. Um, but but right, we have right. to pick one thing, and we can't let other things distract us from that one thing, uh, which is going to be really really hard because he's, you know, it's a long time till November, and and so you know, how do we stay focused on the one target, and how do we all collectively stay focused on one target? You know.
0: Last question. Uh... Strength of the the candidate you mentioned going forward and, and going up against uh, Trump. I mean, that's a, there's there's two people on the ticket who uh, who's running with uh, with Biden. If it's Biden, who's got the nomination?
1: That's really tricky. I mean, you know, if it had been Bernie, I would have said um, someone like. Warren or Stacey Abrams, um, and it might still be Biden, I mean Bernie um, with biden it 's tricky um, again, I still might say a Warren or a Stacey Abrams, I think a woman is probably the right choice. I will say, I think we kind of overthink the vice presidential nomination a little bit, um, the choice a little bit it, it, historically it hasn 't had a huge effect on on um, the electorate, although choosing someone who can campaign really well for you, I think is critical, but in this case, when you 've got two septuagenarians who could be your nominee. You got to pick someone who is young and vibrant and who will be ready to take office the next day, because that's what people are thinking about. People are thinking this guy may not make it. He's really old. I need somebody who is ready to take office the next day. And so that's where you want the broad based appeal. I will say I'm a little nervous about choosing somebody from a coast. Like I think, that might not be the, the white way to go, maybe from the Midwest or the South is is better if we're thinking about geography, but the most important qualification is probably somebody who's ready to be president on day two.
0: This was fascinating. <laughs> Thank you for helping me uh, scratch the, the American politics itch that I know myself and like a lot of other Canadians um, have right now. As I said in my intro, uh, you know, I find myself like reading Michigan, like, advanced polling numbers more than i'm reading like the globe and mail and it's not right it's not okay it's not okay um, we're all thank you yeah. no oh but thank you thank you for letting me lean into to this obsession here um
1: anytime i'm happy to do it yeah
0: i know a lot of people were looking forward to uh, our event and so i know a lot of people are listening right now um if people want to get in touch with you read your work um uh, pick your brain about this kind of stuff, like I got the chance to do for the last 40 minutes, um, how can they best do that?
1: Oh, um, you can find me at my website, SarahDaperry.com. You can find me on Twitter, although I'm not great at it, um, at sarahdeparry. And, uh, yeah, happy to be in touch right. with Canadians. You guys are so nice.
0: <laughs> That's good. That's good. We're, I, we're glad. I, I might That's... be seeking
1: refuge there come November. So
0: <laughs> Well, provided that you are able to um, to make it here, we would uh, welcome you with open arms. So, uh, Sarah <laughs> to Perry, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon.
1: All right. Thanks for having me, Alex.
0: Quality content is hosted by me, Alex Patterson. My producer is Mira Ahmad, my editor is Aaron Reynolds, and Carolyn Smith makes everything around here just a little bit better. The 2020 Network is proudly presented by Interact and is a production of Canada 2020, Canada's leading independent progressive think tank. Come and check us out on Canada2020.ca to see what else we're up to, and while you're there, subscribe to our mailing list. It is the best way to be front of the line when we launch a new event or project. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts and also do get in touch. We're always interested in new episode or guest ideas. All right. That's it for me. Until next time.